The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. brings a new series in 1 Samuel, and invite you to turn in your Bible there, 1 Samuel 1. 1 Samuel, a kingdom emerges. We begin this series looking at Samuel, the last of the judges, and the first in the new era of prophets. Samuel emerges during a leadership crisis in Israel. Samuel prepares the way for a king as will John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. Samuel grows up in Ramah, or his hometown of Ramah, five miles north of Jerusalem, becomes a kind of temporary capital during his lifetime before eventually making its way to Jerusalem. And it's interesting to note in my studies how he was the grandfather of Heman, the singer of Israel and choir director under King David, one of the sons of Korah who wrote Psalm 88. But there are many riches in God's word, and I invite you to follow as I read, as we listen, as we read 1 Samuel chapter 1. There's a certain man of Ramathaim, Sophim of the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of uh, Jeroham, son of Elihu son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, for the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. 
Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, for I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all of his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. This is God's word. Father, I indeed would ask, I would petition you that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Rare is the spiritually significant and impactful man without a nurturing spiritual mother. As we look over the pages of Scripture and throughout church history, Monica, the mother of St. Augustine, the most significant and impactful of the church fathers in the first millennium, wept, grieved, and prayed over her son's rejection of the Christian faith and his profligate lifestyle. With great anxiety, Monica saw her son go off to Rome where young men went to gratify their lusts. But God answered the prayers of this faithful woman. For it was there in Rome that Augustine was converted to Christ, coming under the preaching of Ambrose. Augustine's conversion and his usefulness to God as a testimony to God's wisdom, how he uses men's flaws and weaknesses to promote his glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. For the sins of Augustine's youth led him to deeply appreciate the grace of God necessary for salvation. 
which would influence the Protestant Reformation a thousand years later. Emphasizing what we know to be true from Scripture, that sinners are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. 1 Samuel chapter 1 offers us a profile of faith and courage from one of Israel's mothers. Hannah joins the company of those who inspire us, who challenge us. In our text, I want to uh, approach this passage by first examining her problem, then looking at her petition and finally observing the Lord's provision for Hannah and for all of God's people through the gift of Samuel the prophet. We're first introduced in this passage to the father Elkanah, who is a well-pedigreed man. He's actually a Levite who dwells in the territory of Ephraim. He would be like a Lancastrian with a, a long, uh, uh, with many generations going back uh, for many years. Elkanah, it says, has two wives, which was a violation of God's design at creation, but not uncommon in those days. This would indicate that Elkanah was a man of some means. We would presume that Hannah would be his first wife, but because she had no child, he took a second wife in Penina to bear him offspring to pass on his name and to provide for financial security. So Hannah's first problem is that she is barren, like the matriarchs Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, whose wombs were closed for many years before they could bear sons. In those days especially, a woman's identity was deeply bound to her marriage and her childbearing duties. A woman who could not bear children oftentimes bore shame, endured ridicule. Hannah's second problem is her rival, Penina, who wasted no effort and uh, overlooked no opportunity to provoke her and irritate her, like Hagar, who relished the opportunity to, to uh, conduct revenge against her, mate, her uh, master Sarah. This relishing of revenge and provocation came especially at, in response to Hannah receiving the blessing of double portions, an indicator that she was still first in Elkanah's heart. So Anne Hannah had Elkanah's affection, while Penina had his children. Elkanah is a righteous and devout man who faithfully takes his family up to the tent of meeting for regular worship and the annual sacrifice. But notice that the text indicates that it's on the way to the house of the Lord that Penina provokes Hannah. The house of blessing becomes a house of pain for Hannah. No doubt many people seek refuge in the church only to find pain, where they lack a marriage or have a failed marriage or no children or problem children. Church life can exasperate the gaps and disappointments people experience in their various situations. In response to this provoking, Hannah weeps. She refuses to eat. Her kind-hearted husband seeks to comfort her. And Elkanah is well-meaning, but dense. Adding salt to the wound, 
suggesting to his wife that he is more to her than ten sons. The women of Bethlehem will rightly say that Ruth is worth more than seven sons to Naomi, but Elkanah is insensitive. So Hannah is loved by a good, if not nearsighted, man. But her heart is lacking. She's lacking what she most desires, must endure the taunts of her rival and find herself entangled in a kind of love-marital triangle. Hannah provides inspiration and encouragement to women of all kinds. I think of a woman years ago a single woman who so deeply desired to be married and to have children. And she struggled with a strong sense of guilt and doubt, wondering if she was desiring these things too strongly. And I counseled her that she need not feel guilty or feel selfish for strongly desiring these God-given blessings, but to faithfully present them to the Lord on a regular basis, to trust the Lord and wait on him. And the Lord was kind to her and provided her a godly husband and beautiful children to this day. Hannah, she confronts for us the fact that we encounter many unfulfilled desires in this fallen world. We face lack. We experience loss. We have people in the church who are single who want to be married. There are those who desire children but has not proven viable, lacking the ability to conceive or perhaps dreams are crushed months into a pregnancy only to end in a miscarriage. I remember in my teen years observing my youth pastor's wife weeping intensely at a youth event only to learn from my youth pastor that she had just experienced a miscarriage. At the tender age of 15, I had never even encountered, never had observed such strong desire, met with such disappointment, hope perishing in a moment. Hannah speaks to the barren to the single, to the single again. She's a a biblical profile for all those who feel ashamed, perhaps of a physical inability, some kind of abnormality. For those who feel inadequate, who feel like they don't fit in, who struggle to feel accepted. Hannah inspires us by her persistence to go up to the house of the Lord year after year, enduring the pain of her rival's provocation. But Hannah was a symbol for Israel. Israel who was spiritually barren, who needed to return to the Lord. You see, Israel was God's barren wife who failed to give him the children of faith that he desired. Israel was as incapable as Hannah to bear and produce spiritual fruit pleasing in God's sight. Is God that causes the barren womb to bear a child and the lifeless heart to believe. 
like Hannah, we oftentimes feel empty. Or if we feel fruitless or barren, we must turn to the Lord with tears of repentance. Return to the cross to find new life, fresh hope, to bear fruit. For the Lord Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, Hannah responds to her problem the way the godly have responded with various challenges throughout the centuries. She takes her petition to the Lord. When Rebekah could not conceive, her husband Isaac prayed for her and waited 20 years before she bore him twins. Verse 10 tells us that Hannah goes to the house of the Lord in deep distress with bitter weeping. And in her prayer, she makes a vow to the Lord of hosts, asking God to look upon her in her affliction, to remember her and to grant her a son whom she would offer back in lifelong service to the Lord as a Nazarite. Hannah knows her God, the Lord of hosts, the commander of heaven's armies. Hannah has the faith of the centurion who believed that Jesus could command, just issue the command, and his servant would be healed. Hannah knows who she is. She is a servant of the high king of heaven. And Hannah knows what she wants, a son, to not only remove her reproach, but to make her contribution to the kingdom of God with a child whom God is pleased to have in his service. Contrast Hannah's response to that with the matriarch Rachel who demanded of her husband Jacob, give me children or I shall die. You recall Jacob's angry response, am I in the place of God? It's ironic that Rachel will die bearing her second son, Benjamin. Sarah and Rachel both resorted to surrogate motherhood, a pagan practice that violates the one flesh union principle of scripture requiring their husbands to enter another woman. Hannah is not demanding of God. She does not take matters into her own hand. She trusts in the Lord to provide. She doesn't pray for the downfall of her rival Panina, but she goes to the Lord with her own specific request trusting the Lord to answer according to his perfect will and wisdom. Before she leaves the house of God at Shiloh, Hannah will encounter the high priest, Eli, who mistakes her for a drunken woman by the movement of her lips, her deep distress, and by praying silently in her heart. The sad day in Israel when the high priest cannot tell the difference between an earnest woman seeking the Lord and one who is intoxicated. Eli rebukes Hannah, but cannot restrain his own two sons who show up later in the story. Hannah is quick to correct 
to defend herself, explaining to Eli that she had been pouring out her soul to the Lord with great anxiety and vexation. After hearing her defense, Eli is satisfied, commissions her to go in peace, blesses her, and adds his own petition to the Lord to grant what she has requested. Hannah beautifully demonstrates the faith of the persistent widow who sought justice from an unjust judge. She shares the desperation of the Syrophoenician woman who sought Jesus' healing powers over her demon-possessed daughter, of Jairus' synagogue ruler who sought out Jesus to save his dying little girl. These examples show us where we need to go when we are desperate, needy, when we are at the end of ourselves. But of course, we shouldn't wait until we have no other recourse. We must come to the Lord with all kinds of prayers and petitions, great or small. We learn some things from Hannah about how to go to God in prayer and how and when to make our vows. We're reminded here that prayer is not bargaining with God. God does not negotiate with us. He has not practiced quid pro quo in exchange of favors. I had a friend in college who struggled with alcohol. He asked me to help him make a vow to quit drinking, and in hindsight, that proved premature. My friend needed prayer professional help to deal with various traumas in his life, which he eventually got and became sober. You may recall that Martin Luther cried out to St. Anne, vowing to become a monk if she would deliver him through a torrential thunderstorm. To the consternation of his father who wanted Martin to become a lawyer, the conscientious Luther fulfilled his rash vow, but God would use that to trailblaze the Protestant Reformation. Louis Zamperini, like many other World War II vets, pledged their lives to, pledge his life to God. If he would deliver him from dire straits, in Louis's case, it was rescue from a raft adrift in the middle of the Pacific Ocean after his plane went down on a mission. Louis would endure years of brutal captivity as a POW in Japan, and then more years of PTSD back home in the States. Nearly ruined his marriage before coming to Christ at Billy Graham's crusade in Los Angeles. The Lord held Louis to his vow and did use him to help bring the gospel to Japan is good and right to go to God with all kinds of needs and desires, with many prayers, supplications, and petitions on many and in all occasions. There are times that it's appropriate to make vows when we marry, when we join the church, when we baptize children, when we take up office. But the Bible warns us against making rash vows like the judge Jephthah, who sacrificed his daughter in exchange for victory in battle. James 5.13 instructs us, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. 
We're not to merely grin and bear it with a stiff upper lip. We're not to sulk or complain. But sometimes we suffer unnecessarily. James James goes on to say, you do not have because you do not ask in James 4 verse 2. But verse 3 clarifies that we must ask with right motives to not merely spend them on our passions. It is good and right to ask God for things. It is not good to demand of God or to put him to the test. But scripture would guide us to address God directly, humbly, affectionately. Hannah is a beautiful example of one's earnest and passionate address of her heavenly Father. She'll go on in the next chapter to affirm God's many redemptive acts. She reminds us to ask God specifically to be bold, to be humble before the throne of grace. Hannah does not bargain with God. She prayed for a child whom she could offer back into the Lord's service. She doesn't offer us a formula. There's no way to manipulate or bribe God to get what we want. But Hannah prayed with a mind that knew God, a heart that poured out in its pain with true godly desire. Parents, or those who desire to be parents, even grandparents, are called to boldly pray. To pray for our children. To pray for our grandchildren. To be called by God to serve. To help reach the many unreached that cross this great world. May God call many of our children to be a messenger. To call the nations home to Christ. Hannah's prayer not only changed her, it changed the world. Well, in due time, Elkanah and Hannah came together, conceived, and she bore a son. The Lord answered. The Lord provided. It says in verse 19 that the Lord remembered her. That doesn't mean that he had forgotten her or that he needed reminding, but that is the language indicating God's faithfulness. Hannah names her son Samuel. A play on words referencing the many askings in this passage and the fact that God hears. Hannah's only delay in fulfilling her vow was to nurse and wean young Samuel, which in that culture would have been the age three, perhaps four at the oldest. I'm impressed that Elkanah does not balk. He does not repudiate his wife's vow, but he supports her. It's no small thing to hand one's young child over to service in the Lord's tabernacle. But even more impressive is this long-waiting mother who does not hedge her vow. She does not unnecessarily delay in fulfilling it. It might have been tempting for her to nurture Samuel at home for more, more years, perhaps waiting until he's older, to decide for himself whether he would enter into the service of the Lord. Hannah does not merely fulfill the minimum requirements in her vow. 
a mere lamb and a bird would have been sufficient sacrifice to dedicate her firstborn son to the Lord. But now the ESV indicates that she offers a three-year-old bull, but enough flour to sacrifice three bulls. In the original, the original Hebrew and the Septuagint indicate that it was three bulls that were offered. It's been a disputed matter in the history of interpretation, largely because it's such a costly sacrifice, perhaps beyond the means of an agrarian Levite family. However many bulls it was, it was still an extravagant expression of Hannah's gratitude for the Lord's provision. Hannah offers her best, not her least. She goes for the maximum, not the minimum. She challenges us in giving to the Lord's work in the local church and in the broad mission field. But of course, Hannah's greatest offering was her firstborn son, reflecting the heart of God who offered us his one and only son that we may not perish but have eternal life. Hannah keeps her word just as the Lord keeps his promises and presents Samuel to Eli, introducing herself as the woman that he had blessed. She testifies to the Lord's faithfulness that this indeed was the child she had prayed for, the, the child that the Lord had provided, answering her and Eli's petition. I trust that this was encouraging to Eli to see God's hand at work and now the one whose hand would oversee and train young Samuel in the work of the tabernacle. Hannah, in her closing remarks, describes that Samuel was lent to the Lord as long as he lives. The word lent sounds like the name Saul, who would be the first king anointed by Samuel the prophet. Our passage closes with the beautiful picture of young Samuel worshiping in the house of the Lord. Chapter 2 goes on to inform us that Hannah is blessed with three additional sons and two daughters. She will return annually to provide clothing for young Samuel, Samuel and observe how he grows in the presence of the Lord. Hannah reminds us to keep our word, even if the cost is great. Proverbs commends the man who swears to his own hurt. Ecclesiastes warns us against forsaking and failure to keep our vows. We make commitments to our marriages, to our church, to our offices and our various responsibilities, and God calls us to keep them with diligence, dying to self. Independence upon the Lord whose grace is sufficient for us. Hannah reminds us to be kingdom-minded in our prayers and in our vows. We have many wants. We have unmet desires. Many of us have deep longings. Marriage, children, ministry opportunities, financial gain are all good things. But we must seek them with an eye towards honoring the Lord and grant him full jurisdiction, full freedom to use 
the blessings he gives us for his own purposes and not hoard his gifts for our own indulgence. Our circumstances are quite different from Hannah's. It is not advised that we dedicate and commit our children to service as a pastor or a missionary, but we can pray. We can plan, we can prepare, we can train and encourage our children and other people's children as the Lord calls them. 40% of the world's population has little or no access to the gospel without a viable church witness, without the scriptures in their own language. Yes, the fields are ripe for harvesting and needs workers. We pray that our children would go. Go and be witnesses for the kingdom of God or be senders to as faithful members as all of them are called to serve the Lord according to their gifts and opportunities. Samuel would lead a life of faithful intercession for God's people. The one called to make preparation for a coming king, one after God's own heart, who would establish a kingdom that lasts forever as it waited for the one true eternal king to assume the throne. Hannah had a role to play to make her contribution to God's kingdom and his plans to bring the nations in. This lowly, barren woman became a mother in Israel by her piety, by her prayerful petition, and by God's provision, blessing her with the privilege of birthing a prophet who would pave the way for a forever king. Each of us has a part to play, great or small. Let us with earnestness seek the Lord to be faithful in prayer, to be patient in affliction, to be steadfast, trusting that the Lord will fulfill every one of his good and perfect promises for us in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we are awestruck at your faithfulness to respond to the prayers and petitions of your people. We're grateful for the life of Hannah and for Samuel. And I pray that you would use this story, this message, to inspire us, to console us, to encourage us, to challenge us in our prayers and our vows and our deep abiding faith that is rooted in Christ Jesus. Help us to live out our days, to walk in your ways this coming week, to bring much praise and glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.